You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Heavenly Father, God, we declare that your Son is worthy to receive all praise and honor and glory. We come to you by your Spirit, Lord. We have sung to you, and now we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would take your word, God, and open it and open our eyes, open our ears and our hearts, Lord, to receive from you. And that that would fill our hearts, that we again would would then want to sing to you of your greatness and your power and your glory as you reveal your son through your living and active word. And so, God, we pray that you would uh, work and move powerfully as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to be in the book of Acts. You can open up your Bibles there. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle with copies of God's Word. For those of us who might have left our Bibles at home today, or if you don't have a Bible, this is our, our gift uh, to you. We've been in this series called Built to Last, and I want to sort of uh, take you to a, a construction site where a three-man crew, are. they're all kind of doing the same project. Uh, they're doing masonry. They're, they're working with the bricks. And The first guy, he sort of has his head down and kind of grumbling while he's while he's doing the work, and all he's thinking to himself is, I'm just I'm just stacking bricks. I'm just stacking bricks, just one brick on top of another, brick after brick, and he finds the he finds the work tedious, he finds it meaningless, he finds it pointless. Same thing day after day. I'm just stacking bricks. The next guy, he he has a bit of a bounce in his step, and he, he's not quite looking down. He's sort of looking up a little bit. And what's going through his mind is not, I'm stacking bricks. He has a little bit more perspective. He says, I'm building a wall. I am, I'm actually doing something with these bricks. I am building a wall. But then there's a third member of the crew. They're all doing exactly the same thing. And he has his head raised high in the sky. And what he's saying is, I am building a glorious cathedral. You see, the, the third worker got it right. Yes, they were all doing the same job. They were all working on bricks. They were all constructing a wall. But that wall was part of something bigger. It was bigger than the bricks. It was bigger than the wall. It was bigger than them in the job that they had to do. They were part of something beautiful, something great, something that was built to last. And I wonder if too often when we come to church... That we just think about this, oh, I'm just coming to church. And or we just think, oh, I'm getting together with the people of God. And I'm worshiping God. Or do we come to church with that expectation that I am coming, filled with the Spirit of God, together with the people of God, all for the glory of God, to be a part of building something that will last here on earth and on into eternity. And so with that in mind, we are going to open the book of Acts. And throughout this series, we've been looking at the entire book of Acts, looking for clues to find out how was the early church built back then. Because that early church is is still living, still vibrant, still thriving all around the world today. That was a church that was built to last. And so we want to look back 
at the early church so that we as a church can look forward and build something by God's grace in God's strength that is built to last here on earth and on into eternity. And today we're going to look at this idea of worship and how did God use worship in order to build and establish the church in the book of Acts. And so I want to draw your attention to uh, Acts uh, chapter 2 and verse 46. Right from the very beginning of the book of Acts, after the Holy Spirit came, after Peter preached the first message, after the people responded and were baptized, were given this, this window, this picture into what everyday life looked like for that early church. And in verse 46 it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Notice this, verse 47. Praising God. The early church was a church of worship. The early church was a church that was praising God. Praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see three ways that God uses worship. Here's the first one. Worship is the way that we celebrate salvation. These people had all just been saved. They had all been cut to the heart by Peter's message. They said, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. And they were amazed at God's grace. They were amazed at God's mercy. And because of that, they praised God. The early church was a place where God was working, and wherever God is working, you will see people worshiping. They will be praising God. Some people wonder, I wonder why God isn't working. It's because God's people aren't worshiping. That when the Spirit of God is working, people will be worshiping. And we see it all throughout the Bible. Worship, praise, songs. It says they had joyful hearts in verse 46. This is all characteristics of people who have been saved. We see it in the book of Exodus. Exodus 14, the Red Sea is opened. The people of Israel walk through. The Egyptians start chasing them. The Red Sea closes. The people are saved. What do they do in chapter 15? They sing. There's a song. And it's, it's, a, it's a pattern we see all throughout the Bible. Saved people sing. God rescues, people rejoice. God demonstrates his power, people praise. All the way to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, song after song, we just sang. Worthy is the Lamb. That's right from Revelation. Because he has saved his people. Saved people sing. If you're here today and you're saved, God's spirit is inside of you and his spirit will lead you to want to praise God, to want to sing and express that praise to him. Saved people sing. Joy is a fruit of the spirit. That's why uh, this this service, the way we've structured it, the the first two points are going to come really quickly and then then we'll spend a a fair amount of time on the third point, but I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get through the sermon in time so that we have time to sing together again. That what I, I want to have happen here in this place is for saved people to sing, for rescued people to rejoice, because that's what we see in the book of Acts, and that's the kind of church that we want to be, to celebrate a salvation. Then in uh, chapter uh, 3, uh, Peter and John, they 
They performed this incredible miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit. Someone who was lame from birth gets, gets rescued from that, that hopeless life. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Leaping up and, and, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping, and notice this, and praising God. His, his response, his response from being lame from birth was to leap for joy and to praise God. If it was true for him, for a physical problem that was going to affect him here on earth, how much more true should it be for us who have a spiritual problem? Not just spiritually lame, but spiritually dead, but made alive by the Spirit, not just for a better life here on earth, but on into eternity. How much more, if he was filled with praise, how much more ought we to be filled with praise? Then in chapter 4, they get, they get arrested, they go on trial, they have a, a prayer meeting. Chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, and then the apostles get arrested again. They, they, God breaks them out of jail. They go back to preach. They... they, they they get taken away again, and this time, you see, it's easy to praise when things are going well, but what do we do when persecution sets in? What do we do when difficulty, when suffering enters into our life? What we're going to see, secondly, is that worship is the way that we endure persecution. Worship is not just for the church that feels strong. Worship is not just for the church that is seeing God working in miraculous way. Worship is not just for the person who feels like everything is going their way. No, worship is for the weak. Worship is for those who are struggling, for those who are hurting. You see, in Acts chapter 5, for the very first time, they actually lay hands on the apostles. And they beat them severely. But look at how they respond. Chapter 5 and verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They worshipped. They rejoiced. Because they knew that God had a purpose and a plan in it. Listen, did it mean that, that being beaten didn't hurt? No. Did it mean that they weren't afraid that it was going to happen again? No. But they knew that God had a purpose and a plan for what was happening to them. And they, from that, they were able to praise God. They were able to rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And here's why they rejoiced. Because Jesus had told them in Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what we see happening here is the disciples took something that Jesus said, and they believed it to be true. And because they believed it to be true, they were able to worship God even through something so difficult, so degrading, so painful to be beaten severely. And yet they were able to worship in the midst of it. Why? Because they believed what Jesus said. So much of Christian discipleship is, is modeled for us right here in Acts chapter 5. 
You may not find yourself severely beaten. You may not find yourself even persecuted at this present moment. But we all find, First Peter says, we all suffer from various kinds of trials. And here in Acts 5, we have a picture, a model of how we are supposed to respond when we suffer as Christians. You find a promise from God. Jesus promised, rejoice and be glad when you suffer for my sake, because your reward is great in heaven. The disciples, they heard that promise, they clung to that promise, and that enabled them to worship and glorify God even in the midst of suffering. And that's what we need to do as believers. Scour God's word to believe his promises and then cling to those promises. And, and with those promises, we can walk through any situation or any difficulty. So it's through worship that we endure persecution. The worship intensifies in chapter 6 and chapter 7. That's when Stephen is seized and arrested and he gives his testimony, but then he is stoned. He is, he is killed. Acts chapter 8, uh, Paul, before he's converted, starts actively persecuting people. And, and then they scatter. And remember, this is a transition moment in the book of Acts. Acts 1.8 talked about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Chapter 8 is when they leave Jerusalem because of the persecution, and they start to spread the gospel in Judea and Samaria. That's when we're introduced to someone like Philip, who goes about sharing the gospel anywhere where he can find people. And God leads them to a desert place, and there's a divine appointment there with him to interact with an Ethiopian man who's riding in his, in his chariot, and Philip shares the gospel with him out of the prophet Isaiah. And check out the response. After the Ethiopian man is, is baptized, check out verse 39. And the, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but notice this, and went on his way rejoicing. He went on his way, rejoice. he cranked up that stereo on the, on the chariot and just started singing his heart out. Why? Because he was celebrating his salvation. What we're going to see all throughout the book of Acts is you're going to see these little moments where people celebrate salvation. You're going to see these little moments where the church is being persecuted and they have this opportunity to endure that persecution because they had their hearts set on worship. And then we get to chapter 9 where the Apostle Paul is uh, dramatically converted. And, and people thought there, there's no way someone like Paul could get converted because he was so devoted to Judaism. He was so Jewish, there's no way he could become a Christian. And that's what happens in chapter 9. Then in chapter 10, we're introduced to Cornelius. And Cornelius, it's unlikely that he would ever be saved, but not because he was so Jewish, but because he wasn't Jewish. And what we see in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, we have someone who was so radically religious, he thought they would never become a Christian because they're so steeped in Judaism. Then you have someone who wasn't even Jewish at all. These two completely unlikely converts are saved in chapter 9 and in chapter 10. And so it's, it, God's just blowing the doors open on the church now, showing that everyone is welcome. Whoever calls on the name will be saved, Peter said in Acts and Paul called on the name and Cornelius called on the name but we see something in Peter's initial interaction with Cornelius it's really a window into all of our hearts take a look with me at chapter 10 and find verse 25 
And so Cornelius has had a vision and Peter has had a vision and God's spirit has now brought them together at Cornelius' house. And verse 25 says, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Here's, Here's the third thing about worship that we see in the early church. Worship is the way that we destroy idolatry. Idolatry is the term that's used in the Bible, not simply for bowing before a carved statue. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. And what we see happen in Cornelius' heart when he sees Peter is something that all of us have in our heart. All of us have this propensity, this this tendency to try to worship something other than God. And I love, I love Peter's response here. So Cornelius is on his knees. He's worshiping him in verse 26. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And, he, and then he shares the gospel with him. And then Cornelius is set free from the, the idolatrous notion that he should worship another human being. You see, there aren't, there aren't just religious worshipers in the world. There are atheist worshipers. There are agnostic worshipers. There are secular humanist worshipers. Every single human being on the planet is a worshiper. It's not a question of will you worship. It's a question of what will you worship. See, because all of us came from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were designed to worship God. That's part of our design. But something went wrong when Adam and Eve chose to worship an idol. The first instance of idolatry in the Bible was a piece of fruit. They saw the piece of fruit and they thought, if I have that fruit, then I will have everything I've ever wanted. They didn't worship the fruit, but they worshiped what they thought the fruit could give them. Behind all idolatry is actually a worship of self. And so, all of us follow in Adam and Eve's crooked, depraved footsteps. All of us are bent on worshiping something other than God. We were all created to worship. We're all created to look for something greater than ourselves in order to give ourselves true fulfillment. That's what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. That's what Cornelius was doing here in chapter 10. That's what we see all throughout the Bible. Martin Luther said, you want to know what idolatry is? He says, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. And so we can have different gods kind of come and go in a certain moment, at a certain time. We can worship all kinds of different idols, just like we see that all throughout the Bible. All of these different gods that were were being worshipped. All of us can worship something other than God. So Cornelius is saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he gets baptized. Then Peter goes back to Jerusalem and he has to give a report And so now Peter now has to explain to all of these other believers in the church at Jerusalem, all the other apostles, and he has to explain, yeah, this isn't just a Jewish thing anymore. And and we 
as, as Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, we don't really realize how mind-blowing this would have been for them. How paradigm-altering this would have been. How universe-changing this was in the minds and the thinking of those early Christians. Because the mindset was that the Messiah was only for the Jewish people. That he, that he only came for the lost sheep of Israel. And he definitely did come for them. But he came to be a light to the Gentiles. To be a light, Gentiles just means nations, to the rest of the nations. And so Peter's sharing what happened. Check out chapter 11, verse 17. Peter says, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And God sent the Spirit in such an unquestionable way that day in Cornelius' home that Peter knew that it was the Spirit of God and he thought, God is working. I can't stand in his way. And so he's explaining why he chose to have Cornelius baptized, why those people who were saved that day. And check check this out. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. This 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 hush fell over. And again, because people are trying to trying to process what Peter is saying here. They're trying to fit things together and maybe all of these Old Testament passages are running through their mind and, and, and Jesus did tell us to go to all nations in Matthew 28 and maybe this fits with Genesis 12 when, when God said to, to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth and, and everything that's said in Isaiah about the Messiah. This is, this is, and so silence kind of fell over the whole crowd and then notice this. And they glorified God. That to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Again, we see this other moment where they're celebrating salvation. When you're truly saved, you don't just celebrate your own salvation. You celebrate the salvation that God has granted to other believers. And you long to see it in so many other people's lives. And that's what we see in the early church. This desire to have worship, to celebrate the salvation of other people. And so this is a real turning point, but again, it doesn't mean that all of the Christian life is easy. Chapter 12, there's more intense persecution. The first apostle is executed. James is killed. Peter is in prison. God miraculously breaks Peter out of prison. And then all of this is happening at the hands of Herod, and it's in Herod that we're given a real interesting insight into the nature of of idolatry. Herod had this speaking engagement. He was a politician, so he got the the teleprompter out, and he got ready to give his speech to this crowd. But take a look at verse 21. He's barely able to get through it. On On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Verse 22, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Verse 23, and immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. A Herod didn't give God the glory. The Bible tells us again and again that to God alone belongs the glory. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. God does not share his glory with another 
and Herod heard people praising him and he received the glory and did not deflect or reflect that glory towards the one true God. Now you may not be in a room full of people that are calling you a God, but all of us, all of us find ourselves in situations where we have a choice. Am I going to take the glory? Am I going to seek my glory? Or am I going to give glory to God? And God may not strike you down the way he stroke, struck Herod down. But listen, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. It's happened to me many times. Where I've been, I've been seeking my own glory. Jesus said in John 5, how, how, can, how can you receive the glory of God when you're just seeking glory from one another? And so Herod provides a powerful lesson for us about worship. Ultimately, idolatry is self-worship. When Adam and Eve were in the garden looking at the fruit, they weren't worshiping the fruit. They were worshiping themselves and what they thought they could get from the fruit. And so Herod is this powerful warning for us there in chapter 12. As we head into chapter 13, we're given more insight into worship and the role that it played in the church. Chapter 13 and verse 2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul Saul, for the, the work to which I have called them. And again, we've talked about how this is a transition in the book of Acts. Started in Jerusalem. Chapter 8 was a transition to Judea and Samaria. Chapter 13 is where we see the gospel ultimately spread to the ends of the earth. Because Paul ends up in Rome in that prison prison transfer at the end in chapter 28, which is the center of, of the known world. And then that's just the beginning of how the gospel was spread and is still spreading to the ends of the earth. But notice how all of this started. We talked about how, this, how prayer played a role here because they were praying and fasting, but they were also worshiping. It was in the context of worship where the Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas. We don't know exactly how this worked, but it was in the context of corporate worship, devoting themselves to this important principle. God builds up his church through worship. And so Paul and Barnabas, they go on their first trip and they go to this region of Galatia. Galatia's not a city, it's, it's like, a, like a province, like a, like a region. And they go to a number of different places like, like Iconium and then they go to this place called Lystra. Check out what happens in Lystra in chapter 14, a great insight into the reality of idolatry. In Lystra... Paul, just like Peter, comes across someone who had been lame. And Paul, just like Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to heal this person. God raises him up miraculously. It's an incredible miracle. But check out how people respond. Verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, which is really what God had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, that's important, they're, they're not speaking a language that Paul and Barnabas understand here. He said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, probably because he was bigger than Paul, and Zeus was like the main god, the big, muscular, powerful sky god. And then they called Paul Hermes, because Hermes, that's where we get our term hermeneutics from, um, Hermes was the messenger of God, the son of Zeus. And so they called, they called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. 
They said because he was the chief speaker, Paul did most of the talking, and so they called him Hermes. Now, there's a historical backdrop to this whole setting. You see, there's an, there's an ancient myth about the city of Lystra where Zeus and Hermes actually visited that city, but they came incognito. They came dis- disguised as normal human beings, and they knocked on the homes of a thousand homes looking, looking for someone to take them in. Knocked on a thousand doors, and a thousand doors were shut in their face. And then they went to this one tiny little shack, and the people who lived in that shack let them in. And then Zeus and Hermes reveal themselves. They transform the shack into this glorious temple, the temple of Zeus. And then they send a flood and wipe out all the other people who live in Lystra. And so part of their culture, part of their, their meta-narrative of how they made sense of the world was this idea of Zeus and Hermes visiting Lystra. And so they were thinking that this was sort of like a second advent, that, 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 that they had come back. And so they hold a worship service. You see, we can learn a lot from the worship of Jesus that happens in the book of Acts, but we can also learn a lot, of worship, a lot about the worship of other gods in the book of Acts. And so verse 13 says, The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, remember, they they didn't speak the language, so they didn't quite understand what was going on. When they heard of it, notice how upset they are. They tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men, just like Peter. We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, in order to destroy idols, we need to know that idols are vain. And we may not bow down before another person. We, not, we may not believe in Zeus or in Hermes. We, not, we may not go to a temple and bow down before a statue. But all of us have a tendency towards idolatry. And all idols are vain. All of them are dead that can't actually give us what we're looking for. And so the message of the gospel is to turn from vain things. Think about the vain things in your life that you pursue that you think your life will have meaning and purpose and fulfillment if you had those things. The gospel tells us to turn from those things. Then towards the end of uh, chapter 14, they uh, return home to Antioch, which was their sending church. Then chapter 15, they go down to uh, Jerusalem and receive this letter that they're supposed to share with all of the other churches. And so then they start off on trip number two. They were originally planning on just going back to Galatia, but on trip number two, Um, they had a vision to go to Macedonia and that's where they end up in Philippi and things seem to be going really well now and people are coming to Christ but then just like that, all of the sudden, the Apostle Paul and Silas, his new partner, they end up getting thrown in prison. And again, we're going to see how worship gives us the strength to endure persecution. It's a theme that we see all throughout the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. Acts 16 verse 25, it says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were... Now you just think about if you were writing the Bible, 
what would you say would be happening? They're in prison. They don't deserve to be there. It's midnight. So just fill in the blank for yourself. It was midnight, so Paul and Silas were sleeping. It was midnight, so Paul and Silas were grumbling and complaining at the unjust. It was midnight, so Paul and Silas were trying to get a hold of their lawyer. It was midnight, so they were just filled with bitterness and anger. I mean, if I was the one in prison, I think that's how the verse would would have been written about me. But here's the amazing example that we have here. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners who were listening to them. They were singing. You see, as Christians, it's surprising. We spend a lot of time singing. More more than most non-religious people, and the truth is we actually sing more than most world religions. Sometimes other people sing, but there's something unique about Christianity that when we come together, we all sing. And God has a purpose in that. God has been praised from before eternity. God has has always been praised. God always will be praised. And so when we sing, it's like something from eternity is touching the temporary. Something from heaven is coming down to earth. It's something that will last on into all of eternity. Here's the other amazing thing about singing, and especially when a song reminds us of the truths of God's word, is that it's so much easier to remember something when it's put to music. It's so much easier to remember something when it's when, it's, um, when it rhymes. And that's why I'm so thankful for, uh, for songs, old songs and new songs. I'm thankful for people like, like Jameson who take time to, to write new songs, to write songs for our church. I don't know how many times in the past little while where, where I've been in certain situations and I just think of that phrase in the song that Jameson has called You Are Good where it, where it says, You are stronger than my fear. I love that. Just that one phrase. And I'm so horrible at remembering lyrics, but I know he says something about constant in your kindness or something like that next. And, and how that, God's used that new song in my, in my own life in certain situations. God's also used old songs. You know, I know Jameson. I, I don't know Bill Gaither. But, but come to the water and stand by my side. I know you are thirsty. You won't be denied. I felt every teardrop in the darkness you cried. And I long to remind you that for those tears I died. I don't know how many times where I felt alone, where I felt scared, where I felt in trouble, where tears have run down my eyes. I don't know how many times with my own children or my own family, my own wife, where where I have thought about that song or sung that little song, old songs, new songs. God uses songs, and they sang that song in prison at midnight. It doesn't really seem like a a time to sing. But it's God's power, it's God's spirit that gives us the strength to endure in the midst of persecution and suffering. And so, again, it's amazing the parallel we see between Peter's life and Paul's life. Peter healed someone who was lame. Paul healed someone who was lame. Peter was thrown in prison. Paul was thrown in prison. Peter was broken out of prison. Paul was broken out of prison. And so we see the the Spirit of God working through Paul's life. They end up breaking out of prison. The suicidal jail guard gets saved. And it says that he rejoiced because saved people sing. 
Rescued people rejoice. That's something we see all throughout the book of Acts. Chapter 17, he goes to Thessalonica, and then Berea, and Athens. And then chapter 18, he finds himself in Corinth before he heads back to Antioch, his sending church. And this is when he goes on his third trip, which centers around this location, uh, Ephesus. And something incredible happens in Ephesus. And we, we close here. In Ephesus, there's a, a, a riot that starts. Take a look at verse 23. It says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Verse 27, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia worships and the world worship. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so this riot kind of turns into a worship service. And for hours they're singing and chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And again, we learn about worship through the worship that happens of false gods in the book of Acts. The idolatry that is so rampant in them. And if we're honest, it can be rampant in us. Artemis was the goddess of the hunt. This is a coin that maybe, maybe Demetrius made a coin uh, like this. And so this is Artemis. She's also called Diana sometimes. She's the goddess of the hunt. So she's always sort of pictured with, with a deer or something, something like that. She kind of is in charge of all of, the, all of the animals and everything like that. In Ephesus, they also put a spin on Artemis. She was also the fertility goddess. Because they had this meteorite fall from the sky and, and they thought that, that that meteorite was sent by Diana. That it was an image of Diana. They built this huge temple with 121 columns. There's only a fragment of one left. So much for being built, built to last. And, and so they prided themselves on being the central place of worship of Artemis and a lot of people made a lot of money because there were a lot of tourism came into the town because of this temple and the meteorite and everything like that. And if you take a close look at why Demetrius is stirring the pot here, if you look at what he says, he's not really concerned about Artemis. He mentions his his wealth a couple of times. In verse 24, the narrator says there's no little business to the to the craftsmen. And then he says in verse 25, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And then in verse 27, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. See, Demetrius wasn't really concerned about Artemis. Demetrius was concerned about wealth. Demetrius' idol was not Diana, the goddess. His, His idol was greed. And really, if you want to know about the idol of greed, you You don't need to go to Ephesus. You could go to Jerusalem. You don't need to go to Acts chapter 19. You could go to Acts chapter 5 and read about Ananias and Sapphira. 
They were worshiping the idol of greed. And that caused them to lie to the church about the amount of money that they were donating. You see, idolatry takes all kinds of different forms. Tim Keller so wisely points out that, that and in the ancient world, they had idols for anything because everything, because everything can be an idol. That it's really not the God that the people in the ancient world were worshiping. It was what they thought the God could do for them. Artemis was a fertility god. And so um, fertility involves procreation. Procreation involves pleasure. And so a lot of people were very excited to worship Artemis because it, it resulted in more pleasure. It resulted, it resulted in, in higher levels of procreation so that your family could grow. It also meant the, 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 the procreation, the growth of crops. So it meant more money. And, and, and so you have, listen, how, how much in our culture today do we worship sex and money? And that's what Artemis brought to the city of Ephesus. And so all of us are seeking to worship something. And there's a reason behind it. How do you know? How do you know if you're an idolater? I just want to give you three words. The words, the words protection, the word pleasure, and, and the word purpose. And think about things in your life. Think about relationships in your life. Think about material possessions that you have or that you long for. And what are you looking for to protect you? Where does your source of security come from? And what do you really think will truly make you happy? Where does pleasure reside? What are you running after in order to feel good? And then lastly, what's the purpose of your life? What gives you reason to get up out of bed in the morning? And if you're honest with yourself, you're going to find that at different times and at different seasons, your source of protection is not God, it's something else. Your source of pleasure is not God, it's something else. It's not within God's ways of how he's designed us to experience pleasure in a way that honors him. It's found some other way. Or it's not, it's not our purpose is not found in God and living for his glory, but living for us in our glory. And when we worship idols, we need to be reminded to worship the one true God. You know, the amazing thing about what happened in Ephesus, I just love the fact that Demetrius was so upset. The gospel was meeting people with so much power that it was actually altering the economy. That local business owners had to take issue with the Christian faith because they were losing money. Because, listen, worship doesn't just change what you sing on Sunday morning. Worship changes how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you invest your resources, the kinds of relationships that you establish. And that changes everything. Oh, wouldn't it be awesome if the city of Brampton, if the very economy of our city, that every pimp and pornographer and payday loan um, shark had to close up shop because the gospel took so much root in the city that no one wanted to buy that garbage anymore. And no one wanted to take those ridiculous loans anymore because money is no longer their God or pleasure is no longer their God. They're no longer trying to find protection or security there. Wouldn't that be great in the city of Brampton? And listen, wouldn't it be great in our lives? Listen, Demetrius was a real person. Ephesus was a real place. But as I was reading this passage this week, I just couldn't help 
but acknowledge the fact that there's a little Demetrius inside of me. And every once in a while, he tries to stir up this riot. And he tries to tell me that there's something else that's great beside Jesus. And just like that riot said, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Sometimes there's a voice inside of me that says, that says great is your fear. Great is your desire to, to please people. Great is your desire to possess things. Great is your lust. Great is your anger. Great is this. Great is that. And what we need to be is people who are committed to worship Jesus Christ. So that when we hear Demetrius start chirping, we can say, not great is Artemis of the, of the Ephesians. We can say, great is Jesus Christ. Great is his gospel. Great is his eternal, perfect love for us. Great is his cross that saves us. Great is his resurrection that we have new life. Great is Jesus Christ. And we need to be a church. We need to be a church that recognizes that when we come together, loved ones, we are not just singing songs. We are not just having a worship service. We are declaring the greatness of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to do that now. The worship team is going to come up and not just, uh, not just our regular worship team. We're actually going to have every member of the worship team join us on the stage. I'm so thankful for each and every one of these individuals who spend themselves, practice so hard in order to help us worship the Lord faithfully. And so don't be shy. If you're on the worship team, come on up now. This whole stage is going to be filled with people who are going to lead us in Worship, and we are going to declare together as one body, we are going to declare the greatness of Jesus Christ, and we are going to see idolatry destroyed in our lives and in our hearts. And so, let's pray that God would do that. Let's declare the greatness of Jesus Christ together. Let's silence those voices inside of us that tell us that something else is great. And so let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would do a work in our midst right now. And Lord, we know that you are alive and living and active. And we know that what is about to happen here is more than simply singing songs. And so Lord God, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that something from heaven would touch earth, that something from eternity would come and meet us here in the temporary now, Lord, and that you would fill us with a sense of your wonder and your awe, and that what we sing right now would not only come from our lips, but that it would come from our hearts, oh God, and that our hearts would be transformed, and that would change the way that we live our lives, so that worship is not just something we do on Sunday, but that it would be something that we do each and every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we say, if you agree, say amen. Amen. And if you want to worship Jesus Christ, let's get on our feet together. Let's praise him. Let's declare there is no one greater than Jesus Christ. Let's crush idolatry in our lives. All right, let's sing together. There is no one higher. There is no one greater. There is no one like our God. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.